If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, however you access those. If you have a phone or... Actually, they do have printed copies of the Bible. I've seen some of those around different places. But uh, if you're not familiar with looking up Scripture, it'll also be on the screen uh, behind me as well. And so we are in uh, continuing this series called Rhythms of Grace. And our goal in these next few weeks is to take one of these words, grace, uh, that should be one of the defining characteristics of a follower of Christ and really examine what it is and how to make it natural, a normal part of our life. Uh, I don't know about you, like I grew up, where I grew up in the South, one of the uh, traditions, like when you would go off to college, was like you had to become a fanatic of your college football team. And I was, I went to Auburn, Katie and I went to Auburn, and so we, you know, it wasn't like, are you going to the game? It was like, how are you going to the game? Like, what part of your body are you going to paint? What, where, you know, how early are you going to get there? Where are you tailgating? All this kind of, it was this ritual, it was a defining Thing of who you are. You would introduce yourself, and this still happens. If you've never been to the South, or especially during football season, you may not understand this, but you meet somebody on a, in a fall weekend on Saturday, and you'll introduce yourself, and then the next question is, who are you? And the, you know the question is like, they're saying, what team do you root for? I'm Patrick. I'm for, I'm for Auburn. I'm you know, somebody else, I'm a loser, I'm from Alabama. You know, it's one of those two things. And you, but you define yourself by that. Grace should be one of those things for a Christian that is just naturally rolls off the tongue that defines who we are. It's just natural. It's not something we have to pick up. It's not something that happened to us once in life before and maybe we'll get a touch of it again. It's not something that we're just trying to show to somebody else. It is the vital lifeblood of who we are as followers of Christ. Grace is what beats through our spiritual veins in our life as we live out this Christian walk. And so what we're doing over this five-week series is taking a look at these beats of grace in our life that give our life rhythm and allow us to play this word of grace out in our life. And last week we looked at the idea of generosity in verses 6 and 7 of of chapter 9, and it, it teaches us that a generous spirit is where grace begins. And generosity, we talked about, is much more than just money. It's actually much more than giving. It is about investing. And the word that we kind of said that he used here when he said God loves a cheerful giver, that that word is actually bestowing. It's actually that we are putting the generosity to use. All that we have, we're investing. It's not just sitting hoarded up somewhere. It's part. It's to, we want to give it away. And so we're bestowing, we're living generously. This week, we're going to move to the next two verses in this passage and learn what the next beat of grace should be in our lives. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 9, and two verses that uh, have a lot of truth buried in them. And it says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, for he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. These two verses talk about the beat of grace, and that beat is actually responding to people in need. Paul uses a word here to describe both how we experience grace and how we're to express it, and it's the word abound. Abound. It's the idea of something that has been distributed because of the overwhelming abundance. 
we experience the abounding grace of God through Christ, there is no lack of it. It will never run out. Look at what it says there. It says it has all sufficiency in all things and at all times. I want you to hear very clearly this morning. You and I have the ability to be extravagantly generous with God's grace because it is in limitless supply. Limitless supply. You're not going to use it up. You're not going to one day run out in your life because you've given too much away. Grace, the grace of God is all sufficient for all things and at all times. Always. It will not run out. We don't have to hoard it. We don't have to save it for a rainy day. As soon as we give it, there is more flowing into our life. And thus this allows us to know that we can abound in every good work. What Paul is saying here, the writer of this passage, is that our ability to be generous is not bound by the resource that we have to give or invest, which is God's grace. But instead, it is bound only by our willingness or our unwillingness to let grace abound through us. This idea is that it's simply our job to respond in grace. Seems like it would make things easy. I mean, it's we're the genie in the bottle, right? I mean, somebody rubs and we come out and we get to give grace and give it freely. And it's not just three wishes. They don't have to use their first wish or their last wish to wish for more wishes, you know? It's just there. We're full of grace. We offer it. We can offer it again and again and again. We have this beautiful part to play, and it sounds so easy, but not so fast, right? Not so fast. You and I both know that often doesn't happen in our lives this way. We have attitudes and desires that kill our willingness to respond in grace to people. So what I want us to do this morning is pretty simple. If God through Christ is a source of grace and the example of how to abound in responding to grace, then I want us to look at how Jesus dealt with some different opportunities that he had to respond in grace. And even some of the justifications he could have used to not respond but instead see why he chose to allow grace to fully flow through him. But before we jump into these stories, I actually wanted to determine who it is we're talking about responding in grace to. Who do we we need to show grace to? If we only have to abound in grace to those that are already experiencing an abundance of grace, then it's almost never too difficult to respond in grace. Millionaires sharing money with millionaires is not a big thing. And when you have, and somebody already gives what you have, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I was reading an article this week about this, uh, one of these singers that was nominated for the Grammys, and she was upset because no one had offered to dress her yet. And I was like, oh, how sad, how sad that you as a Grammy-nominated artist, probably with more money than 99% of the people in the world, can't go down and pick out your own dress. You're waiting for someone to come give it to you. This is not what we're talking about. It's not just even within this room, within these walls, with people that have already experienced the abundance of grace of Christ, just trading it back and forth. That would be easy. The grace that truly abounds is not just for those already experiencing grace or for those closest to us. Instead, abounding grace is for people that are helpless, hopeless, and even hapless. It is for people who, because of unforeseen circumstances, or maybe even as a result of their own poor choices, find themselves in a pit of despair, a pit that they cannot get out of themselves. 
Maybe you've experienced this type of feeling before. And when I talk about pit, here's what I'm talking about. This is the way I can remember it in my life. How do I help you? These are the kind of people I need. People that are facing a problem in their circumstances that they cannot remedy by themselves. That they cannot remedy. A problem that in their circumstances that they cannot remedy. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's emotional. I don't know, but it is a problem that they are face up against and they can't get past. Or maybe it's an issue in their character that they can't resolve. They, they're just a liar. They're just a cheat. They're just a thief. And they, for whatever, they cannot get past that. They can't resolve it. Or maybe there's a trouble in their past that they cannot release. There's a failure that is just eating at them and defining at them and gnawing at them, and they cannot let it go. These are the people that are caught in despair, that need us to show grace, to abound in grace to them. And so these are the type of situations we're actually going to examine today, where Jesus interjected himself. So we're going to look at four stories. And the, in these stories, we're going to see some things that could kill our response to grace. And the first killer of responding with grace is to understand and believe that people are too different. The first story we look at is the time when Jesus was confronted with the opportunity to show grace to someone that was very, very different than him. Jesus was early on in his new ministry. He was healing and teaching. He had called his disciples. He was becoming known as a great healer and teacher all around his home area. He had just taught the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most key teachings in all of Scripture. And he was finishing that, and great crowds were following him, and he was heading back home. He was heading to Peter's house, back to Capernaum. And as they were heading there, he was beginning to draw the attention of some local authorities, local Roman authorities. Remember, most Romans weren't Jewish. They didn't respect and hold to Jewish traditions And even though they allowed Jews to practice their religion, it had to be under the watchful eye of Roman authorities. And one of the key authorities in that area was known as a Roman centurion. As Jesus was coming back down from the mountain that day for teaching and he was heading home, a local centurion rode up and confronted him and his disciples. I can't quite imagine how Jesus and his followers might have felt. This man, the authority in the area, came riding into their home. Why? Why? Was he going to harass them? Was he going to accost them? Was he going to try to, you know, get a read on who Jesus was and what all this commotion was about? Was he going to try to demonstrate his authority by creating a scene with Jesus? They didn't know. What they did know that this man was very different than them in almost every way. Very different. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't religious. He wasn't from the area. He was a trained soldier soldier, a trained killer. His role was to oversee them and make sure they paid their taxes and didn't get any ideas about overthrowing the Roman government. But as we're going to see in Matthew 8, this man wasn't approaching Jesus to make a point. He was approaching Jesus because he had a point of need. Look at Matthew 8, 5 through 6. It'll be on the screen. And this is what it says. When he, and it's not, he hears Jesus. When he had entered a Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Appealing to him, he said, Lord, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Just in these words, we also see more differences between this man and Jesus. A centurion by Roman law was not allowed to be married. He couldn't take a wife until after his commission was completed. But the word used here for servant is a very interesting word. It's the Greek word paes, 
which is often and most often translated not servant, but instead is translated young child. And we don't know for sure, but because of the context and the way that this was written, many believe that that centurion was asking Jesus to help his son, who was paralyzed at home, his illegitimate son. It can be inferred that this man, while not married, had fathered a child with one of his servants. This certainly would have gone against Jewish customs, and moreover, he probably followed this child with a Jewish woman who was a servant in his household. His presence and this child would have been a better reminder of the pain and suffering that so many people, Jewish people, experienced at the hands of their Roman occupiers. This man could not have been more different than Jesus if he tried. I don't know about you, but I think it'd be easy for us to understand if Jesus refused to aid this man in his problem, in his pit. I know how easy it is in my life for me to ignore the plight of those that I view as different from me those that I have different beliefs than, it is much easier to justify separating ourselves from those types of people, however we define those types. And the biggest enemy we have to responding with grace is our inability to look past the differences of others. We have a problem looking past the differences of others. We see someone from a different ethnic group. We see someone that grew up in a different area. We see someone from a different culture. We see someone with differing political views, different ideas on how to approach this problem. We see someone with different socioeconomic standing. We see someone that, has been, that we've been told should be our enemy or at the very least should not be our friend, and we separate from them instead of responding to their needs. Jesus did not do this. Look further in Matthew 8, 7 through 8, and verse 13, and it says this. Jesus then said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And to verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Jesus didn't hesitate. He did not. He didn't say well, can you change this, 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 and this first before I do something for you? Can you accommodate, become more like me before I help you? You know, at the very least, I think Jesus had the right to do that, right? I mean, why don't you you move toward me before I move toward you? But that's not grace. That is not grace. What Jesus modeled here is this idea that grace abounds in inclusion. Inclusion is the willingness to not expect people to line their lives completely up with ours before we would respond in grace. Inclusion is the desire to meet needs, to show grace in spite of our differences, in spite of our perceptions, and in spite of the cultural barriers between us. Do you see what Jesus did here? He was so willing to meet a need that he was willing to go with the centurion. He didn't say, go get your son, go get your servant and bring him here. He said, I will go with you. I will go with you there. Responding in grace starts starts with our ability to go where they are, to step toward them. It's so easy. It's easier. It's not so easy. It's easier to show grace when somebody else makes the first move. But true grace is when we take the first move. And we're not even guaranteed they're going to take a move toward us. And what keeps us from doing this? Differences. Differences. 
They're too different. There's a second example we're going to look at, a second killer to our response. And as we see people as too dysfunctional, dysfunctional. Don't be nudging anybody in here and be like, that's you. You know, we, we all have a level of dysfunction in our life. But this second story comes at a time when Jesus comes across a man who is about as morally and ethically twisted as they come. Jesus had been teaching and healing for years now. He'd been traveling outside of his home area. He was actually on his way to Jerusalem. He was days away from the triumphant entry and Passion Week and just about a week, probably two weeks away from his crucifixion. So it's a, a key time in Jesus' life. And as he's passing through a town called Jericho, he meets a very interesting man. One of the most hated positions within the Jewish and Roman culture during those days was the tax collector. Now, today, we love the tax collector, right? I mean, so, I mean, this, you know, it's nothing new that these guys were not like tax collectors, though, in this sense, were very different. They were Jewish citizens that had basically taken work with the Roman government to enforce these incredibly tax burdens placed on these occupied territories. These tax collectors were getting rich off the backs of their brothers and sisters and aiding the government that was oppressing their nation. There was no love, no respect, and no honor given to these people in these positions, and for good reason. But above the tax collector, there was even somebody else. There was something known as the chief tax collector of an area. Whatever hatred you had for the tax collector, multiplied about 100 for the chief tax collector. Because this guy didn't just collect taxes. He enforced the punishment if you didn't pay your taxes. Another Jewish man working for the Roman government, not just coming and stealing from you, but also bringing retribution and pain more so into your life. This guy, he was a target of great hatred and vile by his own people. It took a special kind of person, not in a good way, to be a chief tax collector. It would take someone who is corrupt, willing to cheat others, to make their own profit, to sell out their own people for personal gain. It would take someone who, while they were financially blessed, would really be morally bankrupt. A twisted, vile, cunning, deceptive character with few friends and many enemies. And this is the man Jesus connects with as he walks in to Jericho. Luke 19, 1-4 tells this story. And it says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. I don't know if you grew up in church. We sang that little song about Zacchaeus wee little man climbed up in a tree. Like you always thought Zacchaeus was this nice little guy, right? Poor guy, he's short. He can't see. He has to climb up in a tree. Zacchaeus was a vile, corrupt character. Nobody liked him. We can sing a cute little song about him, but I want you to understand, this was not a man that a respected Jewish rabbi coming into town would have anything to do with. So he was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but upon account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. Of all the people Jesus could have connected with in this town, the one that no one expected him to spend time with was Zacchaeus. Yet Jesus chose to respond to this man's interest in wondering who he was and to take an opportunity to show grace to someone that was morally dysfunctional. If it were me, I could have easily walked past Zacchaeus. 
I, I could have ignored him because of his reputation. I could have scolded him because of his actions and lack of character. Maybe in my mind, grace, if I was going to show him grace, maybe I'd just not be saying anything. Maybe just not be telling him what I really think of him. That's grace enough for me. But what I want to see here is the true enemy of responding with grace is we have a, when we have our inability to look past people's personal shortcomings. Personal shortcomings. It's not just because he was short. He had a lot of other personal shortcomings <laughs> as well. But Jesus does something very different here. He looks past them. Look in verses 5 and 6 in the verse 9. It says this. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And then verse 9 says, after they had a conversation, it said, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Another unbelievable move by Jesus. He doesn't shame this man. Instead, he brings honor into his life. He doesn't call him down to scold him. He calls him down to have dinner with him. What Jesus modeled here for us is this idea that for grace to abound, it must have optimism. Grace abounds in optimism. And optimism is the willingness to continue to show grace to someone in spite of their demonstrated dysfunction and personal shortcomings. It doesn't hold their past against them or believe that it must define their future. Do you see what Jesus did here? Instead of just being willing to go to where he was, like he was with a centurion, this time it says that Jesus offered to stay with Zacchaeus. He says, I must come and stay in your house today. I'm coming over and I'm going to stay as long as it needs for us to work through this pit of personal issues that you're dealing with. If it's one dinner, two dinners, ten dinners, if it's a year of hanging out, I must stay with you until we get through this pit of despair. Responding in grace can, continues when we have this ability to stay with people even when they don't deserve it. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that we have to put ourselves in situations where we are the target of abuse and the primary target of, dis- of their dysfunction. I'm not saying you have to stay in that situation. There are times to separate yourself when you are the target and it is bringing harm directly to you. But there are other times when we can see people acting dysfunctionally, bringing harm into other people's lives, and we can come and stay with them and walk through that with them. And that's what Jesus did. He stayed with Zacchaeus. Stayed when he wasn't making wise decisions, when his character was deeply flawed, until even when he couldn't see his way out of the dysfunction, until he experienced the grace of Christ. He stayed with him. He he went to where the centurion was. He stayed with Zacchaeus. And there's a third story we're going to look at, and another one that can kill us, kill how we respond in grace. And as we tend to think that people are too dirty to show grace to. Too dirty. The next story is about a time Jesus came across someone in desperate need of an advocate, even though there was no doubt that she was guilty. The Bible doesn't say for sure, but all indications tell us that the woman that Jesus connects with in this story was a known prostitute. Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts, and while he had been there teaching at the temple, many of the religious leaders weren't liking what he was saying, and they were trying to trap him and discredit him and turn the crowd against him. And this was one of those days they really threw the bait out there. John 8, 3-5 tells us, 
this story. And it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Laying a trap. In all likelihood, some of the religious leaders had set up this encounter between one of the men in their circle of influence and this lady who was a known prostitute. They simply paid for her services and told her when and where to show up. If you read back in the story, this happened early in the morning, close to the temple. Think about this. This wasn't that this planned encounter happened somewhere near the temple early in the morning, which is not the normal place for such sort of things. People typically don't engage in those services early in the morning around the church. They go to a dark alley at night. This is showing every indication this was a setup. Somebody made this happen. And as things begin to heat up, these men rush in, grab the woman, and drag her before Jesus in an attempt to trap him into turning the crowd on him or them saying that he agrees with us. These men begin to pick up stones. And the easy choice is to judge her at this moment. The easy choice is the same choice we often make. When we see someone caught in sin, when their hidden sin becomes public, when their personal dirt is suddenly uncovered, we rush to judgment. We pick up the stones like the men in the story. And an enemy of responding to grace is our inability to move beyond the public and private sins of other people. We want to pile pain and embarrassment on top of the pain and embarrassment they're already feeling. It it is always easier to judge others instead of responding with grace to others, especially when people are caught in the pit of sin. But Jesus chose a different pathway, a pathway of grace. Look at what he did here in verse 6 and 7. And the verse 11, it says, Then they, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger in the ground, and they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, Let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And in verse 11, it says, she, No one threw a stone. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. And then he told her to go and sin no more. These responses of Jesus just get more unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even though he has every right to judge her, his first move is mercy. Mercy. Grace abounds in mercy. When we embrace mercy. Mercy is the ability to look past the sin and see the person. It's the ability to remember that sin is the trap the person is caught in, not what the person is. Our goal isn't to point out that they are trapped. Instead, it's to help help remove them from the pain and anguish of that trap. They already know that pain, and they know they need provision. Do you see what Jesus does here? With the centurion, he went to where the need was. With Zacchaeus, he was willing to stay where he was. With this woman, it says he literally stooped down. He drew near to her. He got down to where she was. She, he got into her pit of sin, pain, and embarrassment and helped her to stand. Responding in grace continues to grow when we draw near to people and their problems. Even at the weakest and lowest points, we draw near to them. It isn't kicking someone while they're down. Instead, it's joining them in their vulnerable state and aiding them in their recovery. 
put down the stone. Grace is not throwing a stone and teaching someone a lesson. Grace is stooping down in their sin and in their heartache and helping them to stand back up. This is what Jesus did. It's getting harder and harder. It's getting difficult. The fourth one and the final one we'll close with today, this final story talks about how we can shut down grace and not respond in grace when we think that people are just too damaged. Too damaged. The final story, Jesus comes across some of the most despised and rejected people in the culture of that day. Jesus interacted with a group of men that they weren't allowed to even come into the city. Men who no one would speak to and no one, not even their families, had any desire to be around. These men were as damaged as you could get in that day. People with leprosy were completely shunned in that culture. These were a disease that was highly contagious and often associated with people who were being punished for their sins or maybe even the sins of their parents. Not only were they not allowed in the city, if anyone happened to come near them by accident, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, as people approached so that they would know to avoid them. They had to warn people about their own presence. The man in this story had probably not had a conversation with any people in quite some time. He'd been abandoned and alone and left for dead. He had probably not experienced a human touch in years. Completely outside community, completely alone. This man was deep, deep in a pit with no hope. And then Jesus shows up. Luke 5.12 says this. There came a man full of leprosy. Now, I want you to understand that word full. This was not the beginning symptoms of leprosy. It wasn't even like, a, this was a man who was on the brink of death from leprosy. If you don't want to enjoy your lunch, go Google pictures of people with leprosy. It's not a good thing. Body parts fall off. Things you start, stop functioning is a horrible disease to experience. This man probably took everything he had to even speak to Jesus. He was full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he simply fell down on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I don't know how this man had heard about Jesus. Maybe he'd overheard conversations about a healer in town. Maybe he'd seen the crowds around Jesus and snuck near to see what was going on. All we know is that this man, when he saw Jesus, he knew it was his one and only chance to deal with this defining damage in his life that seemed so overwhelming and unconquerable. These kind of encounters often make me the most uncomfortable. Maybe if someone who's so emotionally damaged that they just seem beyond hope and beyond the ability to ever have human, healthy human relationships again. Maybe it's someone in such financial or social despair that there is no outlook that we can perceive where it would remedy their situation. Or maybe it's someone that's dealing with such an overwhelming physical ailment that we don't even know where to begin to have a conversation about what they're feeling and how to help. And so what do we do? When damage is so deep, so permanent, sometimes we just avoid the situation. Just look the other way. Try to act like it's not there. The enemy of responding with grace is our inability to move beyond the deep pain of others. We say, you're dealing with something I don't understand. So I'm just going to act like it's not there. I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to move in the other direction. We don't know what they're feeling. We don't know how to respond. 
We simply start seeing them as unfixable problems, people too damaged to ever be healthy again. We see them in their pit of despair, and we can't see anything that we can do, and we just avoid them. But Jesus didn't avoid this person. Look at verse 13. Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Unbelievable and inconceivable what Jesus does here. When everyone else was probably running in the other direction, only thinking about how this damaged person might damage them, Jesus stopped and showed grace. And Jesus modeled here for us this idea that grace abounds in compassion. Compassion. Compassion means that we start to feel what the other person feels. Their burden becomes our burden. The burden may not go away, but compassion brings someone else into the situation that can help carry the load, shoulder the pain, and the heartache. Jesus takes the last and most intimate step here. He was willing to go to the centurion. He was willing to stay with Zacchaeus. He was willing to draw near the woman in adultery, but with a leper, he actually reaches out and touches him. Touches him. The most intimate of things. The one thing you should avoid at all costs, touching a leper, Jesus does without a moment of hesitation. He jumped into the pit of pain, rejection, loneliness, and fear and wrapped his arms around this man. Responding in grace culminates with our ability to embrace people and their pain in their most damaged state. Now, I want to be clear, our embrace may not carry the same healing power of Jesus to remove the issue like leprosy that's causing the damage, but the embrace of grace will always carry the healing power of helping to alleviate the burden, to help carry the burden. Sometimes just knowing you're not alone is the most powerful form of healing, even over physical restoration. Can I just be honest? These stories blow my mind. They blow my mind. There is a picture of extravagant, unfettered, and truly unbounding, abounding grace. This, it seems, it's not just remarkable, but at times it even seems unreasonable what Jesus is doing. But the beauty of God's amazing, abounding grace is this. It may not be definable, but it is definite. It is something we can touch. It may not be understandable, but it is experienceable. And it may not be reasonable, but it is reproducible. And this is how we respond. To reproduce this kind of grace toward people in our lives. These examples of Jesus drive me to two facts in my life. And the first is this. This is the type of grace God is offering me. I don't know where you are in your life today. Maybe you're in a pit. A deep pit. Maybe you feel damaged, dirty, dysfunctional, just too different. Maybe you feel all those things. Maybe you're overwhelmed, outmatched, and you feel abandoned. And maybe you've been lying in this pit of despair for so long that you've forgotten that there's any other way of living. This has become the norm. And maybe you are desperate and in need of an abounding, extravagant, and unlimited grace of God this morning. And I want you to hear, it is here for you. We are here for you. There's a faith family that is here for you. This is the type of grace God is offering you. There is no pit 
too deep. There is no damage too permanent that His grace cannot come beside and walk with you in and deliver you from. But there's a second truth. This is also the type of grace that must abound in my life. And this is the one that hurts because it's hard. Because now I've got to be willing to look past differences, to look past dysfunction, to look past the dirtiness of sin, to look past the damage that I don't know what to deal with and say, I will step into your life and walk with you. This is what it means when we're called his trophies of grace. We are the demonstration of grace. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been living off the dividends of grace in your own life, but you haven't really considered what it means to allow that grace to abound in you and begin to really respond to others. Today is the day to unleash the power of grace in your life and allow it to become a beacon of hope to those you encounter and need those in a pit that you come across in your life. I told you we'll close each week in this session, not necessarily with a question, but with a vision for what God wants for us. Last week we talked about being generous and how we want to be a giving church. And we talked about restructuring how we doing missions to, to express. And many of you have expressed ideas and already come up with great ideas and we're moving in that direction. Today I want to share with you a second vision a vision of how we begin to put this into place. I can't create a program that makes this happen in our lives. I can give us one step. And the one step is this. I really want to challenge us to become a praying church. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, we're going to have a time where we close, and we have an opportunity to actually pray for one another. But here's what I want you to hear. This isn't just today. What I want to challenge you is this. Praying for those in need, praying for those that are overwhelmed, should be a natural part of what we do. Prayer is not a full expression of grace, but it is an ignition switch that revs up a responsive heart. So beginning in March, what I would like is this. I'd like a group of people, maybe it's a couple or two couples or three or four people that would say, look, at the end of a service, I would make myself available for people who need prayer. And I'll offer... At the end of a sermon, we'll offer at the end of our message time, at the end of our service, we'll invite people who need prayer that are in a pit to come and receive prayer. To say, I just need it. We don't have to know every detail. You don't have to share everything of what's going on. You don't even know how to, if you're willing to pray, you don't even have to know special words to pray. Some of it's the biggest part of grace is your presence. Just being there. Maybe putting a hand on their shoulder or wrapping an arm around them and saying, I'm just praying that you know God is with you and I am with you. But to just not have anybody come into this room and feel like they've left alone. But that we will respond in grace. I'm going to ask us to practice this this morning. If you want to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes and take a quiet moment in here. As I mentioned, you may be in a pit of despair this morning. Maybe it's something we talked about, a feeling, or maybe it's just something completely different, whatever it is. As we were talking about this, you were like, I don't want to just be that grace. I need that grace this morning. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to do something, and it's going to take a little courage. In just a minute, I'm going to, if that's you, you're in a pit, and you need somebody to pray for you. In a minute, I'm just going to ask you to stand. 
when you stand, and what I'm going to do after that is I'm going to ask people to come around you and pray for you. They're not going to ask you what's wrong. They're not going to ask you for details. We're not going to ask you to come down here and share what pit you're in. We're just going to know that you need prayer. You need grace. And we're going to dispense that grace this morning. And so if you're in here this morning, you know, and you say, God, I'm in a pit. I need grace. I just need somebody to stand with me. If that's you, would you stand? Anybody all around this room? It's okay if you're the only one. It's okay if there's nobody. It's okay if the entire room stands. If you need prayer this morning, would you be willing to just stand and admit that? Bring that forward. We have people willing to pray. Hannah said she's willing to pray. And so what I want us to do is at the close of this, we're going to sing. If you need prayer, please come down to forward today. At the end of our service, we'll have people here to pray, and we're going to start doing that. This is the way we don't want you to leave here alone. Father, we are so, so overwhelmed by your grace. God, I can't read these stories, and... Uh, can't read these stories and think that I deserve that. But God, you gave anyway. Unbelievable. God, let us be a faith family that abounds in grace. And at the drop of a hat, we'll pray for our brothers and sisters. We'll pray for those caught in a pit. God, we'll go where they are. We will stay with them as long as we need and we will stoop down and touch them at their deepest point of need and help them to stand back up again. God, let your grace abound in us.